The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about ecosystem-based management of herring and oysters, fish and shellfish. We'll also talk about the recent report on the National Ocean Policy Achievements after five years since implementation. And with me here today at the Ocean River Institute is Noah Randall. Hello, Noah. Hi, Rob. Hey. So we've had quite a week. You know, Monday I testified to the New England Fisheries Management Council, and we'll talk a bit about that in the show. And then Wednesday... We left Cambridge at 6.30 in the morning to drive to the University of New Hampshire in Durham for an all-day workshop on ecosystem-based management by the Northeast Regional Ocean Planning Body. So there are people from northern Maine and southern Connecticut uh, coming together to, uh, in Durham to talk about ecosystem-based management. And um, then we had quite a drive home, didn't we? Yeah, it was snowing, and then it started to rain, and then there was hail, and then it started to rain again. It was quite an adventure. I love that New England weather. You know, you just wait five minutes and it changes. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, let's um, start with talk of the ecosystem-based management of herring and Amendment 8 for the New England Fisheries Council. Sounds good. So um, I know that um, this fish, this Atlantic herring, is more complicated to manage than a lot of others because it's a forage fish. So what does it mean to be a forage fish? Good question. Yeah, it means that all kinds of animals as well as people are depending upon the herring. It means that the herring is low down the food chain and there are other uh, animals and fish and birds and uh, so forth that that really like uh, to eat herring. And uh, we got early involved in this because the... uh, striped bass fishermen were finding it hard to uh, find well-fed striped bass, and that was because they weren't finding enough food. And as many know, the striped bass and the bluefish and the bluefin tuna will chase schools of herring uh, as an important food source. So if those are overfished, then lots of things suffer. So you also mentioned, so so there are two types of herring I have heard of, that there's the the river herring and then there's also the sea herring. So could you first start by telling me a little bit about the river herring? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, We've been doing a lot, people are doing a lot to save the river herring. These are the herring that swim into the rivers and uh, reproduce 
up the streams, and then the, the babies come down uh, into the ocean uh, for many for a number of years, maybe seven years before they go back up again. And so lots of efforts have been done to open the riverways to have uh, free passage, uh, cooler waters, and cleaner waters on the shore side. And uh, and so those those herring are the alewives. Uh, there are three species, alewives, blueback, and the shad. The shad are kind of big for a herring, so sometimes they're called herring and shad. But um, those are the, the three uh, river herrings that we have around here. Uh, the uh, blueback is more endangered than the alewife, probably because it's more discriminating in where it goes, what it eats, and uh, staying closer to shore than the, uh, in the ocean than the, the alewives. Um, so that, yeah, that's the river herring. Mm. Um, and what about the sea herring? So the sea herring are herring, uh, the predominant species is the Atlantic sea herring, and it spends its entire life at sea, out of the river mouth. It doesn't go in there uh, other than it may go into the salt marshes as a nursery, uh, but the, generally they, they, once they become catchable size, they're all offshore. And so these are the fish that are the... Uh, that are being managed by the New England Fisheries Management Council. As we've talked in past programs, uh, 230 some odd stocks of commercially valuable fish are managed by the Fishery Council. Right. And one of those is the Atlantic sea herring. The river herring don't fall under that because they are in the rivers. So if you, the best way, to, and it used to be that the fishermen would just set their nets and they weren't sure if there was some um, river herring mixed in with a sea herring. And if they caught the river herring with a sea herring, it was an incidental take, not a bycatch, because they could market the river herring along with the sea herring. So mm-hmm. it was all the same to the fishermen. Right. So um, there, the, one of these two types has like, come into importance now, you said, having to do with Amendment 8. Um, so... Which of these two, the river herring or the sea herring, is mentioned in Amendment 8? Right, right. So that's, that's an important distinction is that Amendment 8 is all about the sea herring. Mm. And so they're having an open comment period right now uh, through the months, and some people are st- taking the opportunity to talk about the river herring. And that those kind of comments end up being dismissed because they're not pertinent to what Amendment 8 is about, which is about the uh, Atlantic sea herring. Many more people care about the river herring because we encounter them in our rivers, but the sea herring are also very important. Okay. And can we just remind um, people what this amendment is an amendment to? Yes. Uh, The amendment is for the management plan of the sea herring stock. And um, is this where I go into some of the history of how we came about here? Uh, Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so does this amendment sort of relate to how ORI successfully um, ended up doing NOAA um, for the ecosystem-based management of Atlantic sea herring? Absolutely. Thank you. What a great introduction. Uh, yeah. So uh, about four years ago, um, or some years ago, I'm not exactly sure, uh, the Ocean River Institute teamed up with a commercial fishermen, a recreational fisherman, and a commercial boat operator. And the three of us were plaintiffs in a suit 
uh, because for three years, the NOAA and the Fishery Council said that they would take a more ecological approach or a more ecosystem-based management, and they would respect the fish, the herring, the sea herring, as being a prey species. would be a more complicated management plan. And for three years, they said they were going to do that, and at the last minute, they said, oops, we can't do that. Let's just keep managing them as a single species. Let's just continue to manage them as at the maximum sustainable take that we can have and still have those fish reproduce. Mm. And so um, a bunch of us were not happy with that, and so we uh, sued the government, NOAA, who is ultimately responsible for all this, and said, look, guys, uh, we don't know how you're going to do it, but you really got to do it in an ecosystem-based approach. You really got to leave enough fish for the other fish, the birds, the whales, and all, all the other you know, foragers, uh, the predators of, of the Atlantic Sea herring. And so the, the court case was a success, meaning that uh, the court mandated the Fishery Council to go back and do better and take an ecosystem-based approach. And so this amendment is putting forward a choice of different degrees of um, ecosystem-based management. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we want to go fully that way. One of the options is don't change a thing, keep it the old system. So that's why we're asking people to join with us in petitioning uh, the Fisheries Council during this comment period to call for responsible ecosystem-based management of sea herring. Yeah, it's super important that um, they do take an ecosystem-based approach, management approach, um, so that the other fish species and um, creatures that rely on these herring can um, survive along with us being able to use the herring for our own consumption. Exactly and, right. Yeah. We want to have a complete ecosystem with the food moving through the system and not just getting to the herring and then all that hot carbon being pulled out by the fishermen. Right, because we end up taking too much, the other fish that we want to eat, commercially valuable stocks, um, we won't be able to get because they won't be able to have enough food. Correct. So probably the the bluefin tuna and the uh, uh, striped bass and bluefish, for example, are three fish that depend on schools of herring to get through. Uh, And if they're not here those fish will leave the area or just disappear. Right. And also the whales, right? Can you tell me oh, about yeah, the whales? Oh, yeah, whales. So, you know, we've, I've been involved with this whale watch industry since its beginning, and every spring or every July, the herring come into the waters off of Boston, and there is a feeding frenzy of whales and gannets and um, other birds and, and probably other fish, but you don't see them because they're underwater and we're above the water. Um, and they come here because of the herring. They don't come here because the whale watchers don't come. The whales don't come for the whale watchers. The whales come for the food. Right. And if the food ain't there, then the uh, whales are going to go elsewhere where the food is, where the herring are, uh, where forage fish are to be found, uh, because these whales, the humpbacks, the fin, the brides, and the minke whale, are all seen here, and they all eat fish. The, the right whale eats uh, plankton, so it'll be happy whether or not the, the herring are around, but the, um, the other whales need to have fish, and the fish that feed the whales keep the, the, the whales happy, and you see the whales bubble netting uh, fish, uh, getting the fish to herd together so they can mouth them more completely. Um, yeah, and, watching that is super cool. Yeah, 
it's incredible. They blow bubbles under the water to create a barrier so the fish can't, or it seems like the fish can't escape. That's right. And so they kind of get denser and denser, and then the fish and the whale opens his mouth and just pushes through that and comes up vertically through the water, and all the water spills out and yeah. remains all the... And the, the fish are dripping out of the corners of the mouth of the whale and stuff, and the seabirds are diving in to grab the fish away from the whale. And I've never seen a seabird head by a whale, but they, they work pretty close together there. And uh, it's spectacular. And if the whales... if the, whales are on bubble netting, then the net profits for all the shore-based industries, the tourism industries, that benefit from the whale water industry are going to go down. Mm. So there's an economic connection between the prosperity of, of businesses, of tourist industry businesses, and whale watch-related businesses on the shore, and, and the amount of sea herring in the ocean. So there's another economic reason, uh, as well as an important economic reason is that I like to eat striped bass and I'm not going to be able to eat striped bass if there aren't enough herring to, to feed it as well. So there's another economic incentive for managing herring for more than just pulling herring out of right. the ocean. Um, so what are we asking for in the actual management of sea herring? What are the conditions that we want um, to be taken into account? Yes. So uh, to appropriately manage herring consistent with the law, and this is what I testified before the mm. council about, is that we need, I got specific here, so we need, uh, one, a stock assessment that sufficiently accounts for all of the sources of uncertainty, including natural mortality, and, two, an appropriate control rule that can respond to a variety of changing fishing and environmental conditions and protect the marine ecosystem. Ultimately, we need a harvest policy that addresses some of the spatial and temporal concerns repeatedly raised by fishermen to make sure there are enough herring in the times and at the places that their predators need them to be. So an appropriate control rule for Atlantic herring should include leave a large buffer between the OFL and the ABC to account for scientific uncertainty. Uh, that means, you know, leave enough, have some margin of error room in there because there's much uncertainty in our calculations of the populations. Uh, it should take, it should establish a target biomass that is at or greater than 75% of the virgin biomass. Now, how they got the virgin biomass is really complicated, but whatever that number be, whether it be from 20 years ago or 100 years ago, we think they should, you know, uh, limit the, the take to uh, make sure there's always 40% of that uh, left in the ocean. And this is a similar amount that's being used for the Antarctic krill, uh, Alaska herring, and on the U.S. West Coast, the sardine and mackerel stocks are being, you know, they're always leaving at least 40% of the virgin biomass there so that, that we'll have the sustainable fisheries. Mm. Now, it should also set a maximum fishing rate that corresponds to 50% of the S the FMSY, or 50% of the natural mortality, whichever is smaller, and it should adjust the catch annually as the estimated population size increases or decreases. Finally, it should end fishing if the cutoff biomass limit is reached. So once they reach the number of fish that they're supposed to catch, stop the fishing at that level. So there, there really is a burgeoning body of science in the Gulf of Maine related to the food webs. And so we look forward to that information further informing the councils in their decision-making processes as the council moves forward 
to take a more ecosystem-based management approach. Right, and something that's so, I think, really great about ecosystem-based management approach is that as the conditions change in the area and with the fish populations, the so does the management and so does the um, the actions that are taken by, you know, the fishermen. You know, fishing will decrease if the population decreases and it's sort of like it's responding to whatever the changing conditions are. Good point. It's really critical that they be adapted to changing situations because we don't know how things are going to change. We, right. we saw evidence that the... Uh, with the warming waters, the currents changed a little bit, and suddenly the herring were in a different place than they had been when the puffins on Matinicus Rock was flying out to, um, to, to catch uh, herring to feed their chicks on the rocks. Uh, they suddenly weren't able to get out to where the herring were. Right. They were in a different place. And so the uh, puffins had to catch. Uh, they were adapted. They shifted to butterfly fish. But the butterfly fish were too big for the chicks to eat, so it was a bad year for the chicks. Right. Of, yeah, of yeah. And that was because the fish had gone elsewhere, as you said. So we need to be adaptive. In that situation, I don't blame overfishing uh, change. I blame the current shifting for the herring right, moving but, away from. Yeah. But we need, as you said, we need an adaptive approach so that when things change, we Whether can it's the environment or the fishing, whatever may be changing, you can... You can change with it. These are very dynamic systems. Yeah. So where we're at, we need citizens to help us convince the fishing council to make the right decisions here. The fishery council are quasi-government. They're half uh, industry fishing people and half government appointees. And then ultimately NOAA um, makes the decisions at their advice. So um, government responds to the citizens. So it's very important that if you care about always having sufficient uh, Atlantic sea herring and food for striped bass and whales and seabirds and so forth, please go to our website, oceanriver.org, and uh, click on uh, Take Action for Saving uh, Sea Herring um, and sign our petition. And it really means a lot if people take a moment to write a personal comment about why they care about this because it doesn't mean much to the council to see a gazillion names but a few well-chosen turn of a phrase are never forgotten by them. And they get the whole nine yards. They're given printouts of everything that everyone says about the issue. Yeah. So, um, so that's it for um, Atlantic Sea Herring and its amendment. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about, what are we talking about, oysters? We are going to be talking about oysters. Okay. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello, we're back with... Noah, we're back with Noah Randall, um, our spring intern from the Ocean, the Ocean River Institute, and uh, we are talking about, well, we were talking about Atlantic sea herring, we we'll have to hit rewind for that, and um, now we're going to talk about oysters. Yeah. So, um, like we said yesterday, we were at the Ecosystem-Based Management Workshop um, at the University of New Hampshire, and we heard some presentations, uh, one of which was about oysters, um, and it was about Anna Maria Frankich, who spoke about her oyster whispering in Wellfleet. Um, So she told us about how she was invited to go to Wellfleet, um, and sort of they were having an issue. um, They weren't having as many oysters as they they once did, um, and so they wanted to reintroduce some in the places that would make most sense where the oysters would do the best. Um, so she and her team uh, mapped the area um, around Wellfleet Bay, yeah. uh, and they found out where the oysters could do well based on historic uh, maps and what they found out from their research. Um, and they started to grow oysters there, and we saw a picture that showed the before and the after. So the before was that it was completely, almost completely barren, just a few oysters were growing there, and afterwards um, it was full. Yeah, the seascape was full of oysters. Yeah, so the mudflat was, had a lot of growth going on. Yeah, this is a big deal up in Wellfleet. They, they've been thrilled. Anna Marie Franknich is a professor at UMass Boston, so when... She comes. She comes with a whole entourage of eager students who are out there to save the world, and they uh, work closely with uh, Coastal Zone Management, who had the fancy um, had the fancy maps, and then um, and then they could go. And then Anna Marie and her students were out in the field, you know, surface truthing, you know, whether there were oysters here or not, and stuff like that. So she had a huge expanses. I wrote the numbers down, but I put them somewhere else. Um, but they. 
I think by order of magnitude, 10 times, 10 times as many oysters today than there were when they arrived. And it's really exciting the way they were able to, to do that. The whole town turned out. Uh, I had the good fortune to uh, meet with uh, one of the town councilmen um, who was very excited about uh, the uh, work of oysters and how that they had uh, put in a grant to receive money from uh, for preventing damage like that from Superstorm Sandy. And the Wellfleet proposal was to build an oyster reef. And this would just require, you know, getting the oysters' shells piled out there and some seeding, but natural seeding as well. And it would then maintain itself for a long time, if not forever, um, as a great barrier protection from the surge of storm waves hitting the Wellfleet shore, which is a shallow, sandy you know, shoreline here. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the money went instead to uh, you know, buy sand to re- re- slow down beach erosion around some expensive properties and stuff and elsewhere on the Cape, and that was kind of discouraging. Uh, but it's very exciting, this idea of an oyster reef. Right. So what makes an oyster reef so special, and why would it... Well, come on, you know the answer to that. What do you think is good about oyster reefs? Well, you can produce oysters. Yeah, yeah, so the oysters... For eating... Yeah. But does it also have some, like, does it prevent, you were saying something about storms, how it helps right. prevent storms, so it's sort of like a buffer there. Right. And does it feed other creatures that live around it? I would think so, yeah. It would provide holdfast for all kinds of bottom life that can grab onto the shells of the oysters or, or else other stuff. So you have a diversity of marine life, and then you've got critters that eat the critters on the on the bottom and stuff. Right. The benthic critters. So it, it's, it's enhancing the ecosystem. And then uh, oysters, as you know, uh, Noah, because you've studied at Catalina Island and stuff, you know that these guys filter a lot of water. So it's, they're, right. good at, they're good at cleaning the water as well. Um, so you end up with, you know, buffering of storms and uh, cleaning of water and then possibly good food to eat. I like eating oysters. I think that having a... A cold oyster is like having a, the essence of ocean in your mouth. And the oyster comes with the seawater. It's locked in the shell. So when you have a, a cold oyster, it's a little oyster sitting in the seawater of that particular body of water. So um, to me, it tastes like I just fell overboard. You know, I've had that experience in the ocean of falling over the boat and swallowing water. And when I have one of those oysters, it comes back to me, that same taste <laughs> sensation, you know, it's like the algae level is familiar or something because I prefer the Cape Cod oysters where I grew up, you know, in the summertime and stuff. Um, so um, this is a, a really exciting prospect. Uh, we have, uh, what's wonderful about these national ocean planning regional bodies that get together is that uh, the State uh, Department of Environmental Energy Protection people from Connecticut and Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Maine, they all come together, um, uh, federal people and um, local operators, you know, non-NGOs and so forth. We all get together. So I was fortunate to be seated at a table with the uh, director for uh, the Department of Environmental Protection at Connecticut. Right. And Brian Thompson. And so Brian was telling me about some of the oyster <laughs> and put out some um, of those cement, wholly perforated, you know, 
round structures that'll be a substrate for right, artificial reef. Artificial reef, yeah. And um, and he was saying that there's concerns by the oystermen that these oysters might um, not be good for the oystermen oysters. And I was wondering why can't the state just lease patches of the artificial reef to the oystermen and let them put their oysters out there. Right. And they can tend them and they can profit from the harvesting of them. Um, you know, that sounds to me like a win-win situation. Yeah, I agree. There have been efforts in Boston Harbor to do that. Uh, Boston Harbor is a little bit dirtier. So. Yeah, so they all, that's why they want to do it. They don't need the storm surge protection. We've got Deer Island and Hull and Winthrop and all these things protecting, you know, Boston Harbor right. from storms. But the water is the muddy waters of the Charles River, you know. it's um, You wouldn't be able to eat these oysters. Exactly. But they would help to clean the water. That's and so true. That, that was the idea. And I thought some were put in. Uh, I'm now hearing that either they were taken out or efforts to put more in were stopped because, um, well, Anna Marie is right there in, on Columbia Point in South Boston, and so she uh, was not able to add more oysters in, and that's that's such a bummer for the students who want to be monitoring the oyster stuff right. here in the harbor and stuff. But the, but there's 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 good hope that uh, we can build these, we can protect ourselves from storm surges. Uh, with these uh, living shorelines of salt marshes or quahog, uh, or, quahog or uh, oyster reefs. Um, quahog needs sandy bottom. Um, and we can eat well in the process and get cleaner water. I mean, what's not to like? Yeah. Um, so how did these oysters and oyster growth relate to ecosystem-based management? Yeah. So the workshop was all about ecosystem-based management, and here was this one story presented by one of the six or seven panels we had there. And um, that wasn't made obvious, but I wanted to make it obvious in the afternoon. But we were looking for, because, you know, a, uh, an oyster reef is an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It's got, you know, the oyster animals, and it's got the plankton and the phytoplankton coming through, and it's got, I don't know if it has seaweeds growing or not. I'm sure it's got little seaweeds growing off of the uh, stuff and, and uh and on so, and off the food chain. So it is an ecosystem. So part of the management would be about the introduction of these oysters and the effect that that has on the ecosystem? Well, yes. That's, that's, a, great, that's a great way to go about it, exactly. Uh, the, the workshop was trying to figure out, they're talking frameworks and stuff about how do we do ecosystem-based management. And I think that a good case study would be oyster reefs, I also recommended that we look at restoring fish habitat, you know, rather than just complaining about the overtake, if there's some way that we can, because that's what the, this workshop is doing, is they're trying to figure out what is ecosystem-based management, what's the, how is it done, um, do you have to manage all the species or one, and the first thing they learned was that different agencies have different needs for different kinds of ecosystem-based management. You know, what the New England Fisheries Council is doing for Atlantic sea herring in Amendment 8 is a form of ecosystem-based management. And how they do that really does not relate to how coastal zone management of Massachusetts or Connecticut works for uh, oyster reefs off off of their shores. But um, the, the... the beauty of this workshop is that we're finding commonalities that can strengthen the overall 
approaches, I think, to ecosystem based management. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it for oysters. And Great. we're going to take another break, and then when we come back, um, we're going to talk about uh, the national ocean planning, national ocean policy was uh, set up by Barack Obama, President Obama, uh, early in his tenure. And so it's been operating for five years by executive order. And it um, it comes after setting up these regional ocean planning groups, but uh, it's helped to have a staff uh, out of the White House to uh, coordinate uh, the progress of these regional ocean planning groups and, uh, and doing other things. So when we come back, we're going to talk about um, there were many accomplishments that came out in this five-year report, uh, and I'm, we're just going to cherry-pick, uh, what is it, the first top six or something? Oh, yeah. yeah, that um, that I'm excited about. So we'll be right back after this break. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. 
You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hey, we're back. Noah Randall's with me, and we're sitting here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're going to talk about the national ocean policy. Um, take it away. Yeah. So, um, this report, like Rob said, uh, is sort of talking about the accomplishments that were made in the past five years um, as a result of the national ocean policy implementation. Um, so, Part of this was um, to introduce more STEM um, and ocean, curricu- ocean STEM curriculum um, into schools K through 12. Um, so that means like having more marine biology classes and a lot of stuff um, for younger kids as well. Um, and I actually was able to benefit from sort of an offshoot of this, which is the National Ocean Science Bowl. Um, which is a competition that's run um, every year, and you teams join up and research and learn about the oceans, everything that has to do with oceans, biology, geology, history, um, all the science and all the social science that goes along with it, and then there's a competition. So, uh, Yeah, I recommend, if you can ever get an intern who's been a science bowl, I've been calling Noah's champion, but she can't. She says she's not a champion because she didn't win the competition or something. But you are in our book, and it's just remarkable how much fact you don't need an encyclopedia. Just ask Noah. You know what's the spare drop and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, so I I think this is super cool because it's introducing more marine science to younger kids so they can get excited about it and then get like learn more about it and pursue this ocean science like when they get to high school. So. Um, increasing the amount of ocean science and knowledge in general um, with kids means that your public is going to also be have like higher ocean literacy, which is another topic that they were really interested in focusing on, um, and they had some success with. So, uh, like they really wanted to increase public understanding of sort of how these ocean bodies work and um, how the fish are connected and how all of the different ecosystems you know, play a role in, like, your own personal health. Because uh, if a fish is healthy, that means you'll be healthy. So, um, yeah, increasing the education of the kids is going to, inc- like, then the kids will talk to their parents, and then you'll have this whole, like, system where people are learning more about what's going on in the ocean. Yeah, the, the uh, ocean literacy really uh, comes out of the work of the National Marine Education Association, uh, prior to 2010 when the uh, uh, ocean, uh, the National Ocean Policy was passed in 2010, uh, fortunately, you know, across the nation, educators have been working together to um, set out uh, principles of what uh, should be learned about the ocean at the fourth grade, eighth grade, and twelfth grade levels. So that's all spelled out and uh, is implemented, and it's really doing a great, it really ties back again to the STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. Is a new buzzword for good science education. Um, and I think actually they in- introduced an A into that, so it's now STEAM having to do with arts, so like the creativity that's involved in engineering. Um, well, it's also been the arts. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but all of that um, comes back to um, students being able to get jobs when they get out of school. 
and and so this is all tied together again with uh, you know having more ocean litter and then uh, more stem and steam uh, to to ultimately lead to uh, better employment and uh, probably help you get into Smith, I guess. I don't know, but I think it's involved. <laughs> I think it's I mean it's important for students to uh, be involved and know like. The environment is at the forefront of, you know, everything these days because it's changing and we need to be aware of it. And so, um, and the ocean is a big part of those changes and the more people know about the ocean and the effect that it has on, the effect that environmental changes have on the ocean and the interconnectedness of everything um, that the Ocean River Institute is all about, um, the more that people know about how that works, the more they're going to, you know, put their effort into caring about it and, making a difference in, um, you know, donating to organizations that are really trying to help fight the, the changes that are not good for our environment. Yeah, please donate to Ocean River Institute so I can keep paying Noah to work here. Um, yeah. Um, I lost the other line. So there, but, um, yeah. um, there are a couple other um, aspects that they've been working on as well um, that they have been proud of. So, uh, for example, the regional ocean planning uh, has been an aspect, though that was instituted before um, this. That's okay. No, this still, I take credit for. Yeah. Right. It yeah. still is something that um, right. we so, well as we witnessed yesterday in our workshop. Exactly. So that was the first thing I took credit for. Um, but returning to what you were talking about, it's, it's not obvious to people that they can do things to affect the ocean. The ocean is so huge. Right. So this is, you know, what's really great about NOAA's work and our work is to engage people to show they can make a difference. And so if you want to find out, the listener wants to find out how they can help make a difference in the ocean, please go to our website, uh, Ocean River, one word, oceanriver.org.org. And there you'll see six different campaigns, six different ways that you can make a difference for rivers and oceans and watersheds. Um, with oceans predominating. Uh, and so, it, you know, people, there are many ways you can make a difference. And if you have trouble coming up with a way to help, I recommend you talk to a, a high school student or an elementary student or a former high school student because uh, they're very much uh, close to the, the, the interactions of what's going on and they're, they're very aware. So that they're a good source for, for information on what one can do. Uh, but we do urge you to uh, come visit our website and help join with uh, other people, about 45,000 people have opted in to receive our e-alert messages, and they often include uh, opportunities to make a difference. And those opportunities come on a base of timing. When a decision maker is coming in a decision, like the Northern Fisheries Council is deciding about how to take a more ecosystem-based management approach to sea herring, now is the time to comment on that. So we urge you to subscribe to our e-alerts so that you can... Um, know the right timing, when to step up and comment for the love of oceans. So that was a good commercial for our work. <laughs> um, yeah, so the other elements of the, uh, some of the other elements were uh, the important work of the, of the regional, uh, regional ocean planning bodies, uh, the STEM and uh, National Ocean Science Bowl work, ocean literacy. Uh, what's really cool is that they um, have been uh, working uh, well, what this national ocean policy did was it, it made, and we saw it in Faneuil Hall, right, in, in the historic Faneuil Hall in Boston, 
uh, under pictures of the uh, revolutionary people, the Navy, the Coast Guard, the Interior, and NOAA, all four heads of agencies stood up and said, we will talk to one another, we will collaborate, we will work together to address ocean issues. And by golly, they are really succeeding. There's not going to be time to, to outline all the things that have, have advanced because of that. But one of them is uh, they now have developed more rapid techniques for um, detecting harmful algal blooms. They have increased the shoreline monitoring uh, and assessment of, uh, you know, uh, 40 uh, federal and non-federal entities nationwide. And uh, this includes uh, primarily as part of citizen science and volunteer-led efforts that we're getting more and more uh, shoreline and ocean monitoring data uh, being submitted to NOAA. They have made big advancements on um, the illegal and unreported and unregulated uh, seafood fraud task force has been looking at mostly overseas fishing that is um, being done uh, on the black market. Uh, it's estimated that 10 to $23 billion annually is uh, being consumed by illegal fishing uh, around the globe, and so there's a special federal task force, and they're providing recommendations for combating this overfishing and seafood fraud, and the task force has submitted recommendations uh, just in December, and so now the agencies are working to come up with announcing implementation actions early in 2015. So these things cannot move any faster than they are, but it's great that they're moving forward. Uh, the task force develops 15 recommendations divided into four categories, from international action to strengthening enforcement to partnerships and traceability. Obviously, tracing the food, the fish, the seafood through the consumer, you know, from sea to consumer uh, trails is really important. Ultimately, you know, we'd like to be able to go into a, a restaurant and say, can you tell me everything about the salmon I'm about to eat? You know, I want to know what river it came from or where it was caught. And uh, the science is there and to do that, and, and we're working toward you know, getting more and more accountability for that. Um, uh, another one is um, uh, reefs to rigs. So there's a federal policy that provides the states now with greater flexibility in their artificial reef planning. Uh, while balancing both the environmental and safety concerns with various other users uh, when they're putting things out on the continental shelf lands. And so this process, by working together, has generated more than $100 million for the states, which help local economies be more sustainable. It also provides a variety of ancillary benefits, such as capital improvement projects that states can undertake with the money they've raised by uh, making uh, rigs uh, more uh, productive reefs, so it supports more sea life. Mm. Uh, there's, I, I spoke to the, the Beverly or the North Shore frogmen of, up in Beverly, Massachusetts, and they were all gung ho about going diving around a new LNG, you know, gas pipeline reef that was being a rig being put off of Boston Harbor. And I had to slow them down and say, "Well, Homeland Security's not going to like that and stuff." But, um, but there are ways to. Um, to manage that so that uh, divers can have an opportunity to see and appreciate the increase in sea life that follows with the increase of holdfasts and surface areas for marine organisms when uh, rigs are put out there. Uh, it's only to have, you know, artificial reefs next to the rigs that attract the fouling organisms and stuff. 
Um, I guess that's it. We had, those are the projects we had. Yeah. Um, do you want to say anything more about this uh, National Ocean Policy Report? Um, I just found that I had never been to a sort of like an ocean planning meeting before, and it was uh, it was really interesting to sort of see. What, one thing that I thought was really great was that there were fishermen and, you know, regular fishermen and lobster fishermen there and uh, people who were from, you know, environmental groups, people who were from federal agencies, state agencies, uh, business people, everybody with, you know, lots of different ideas coming together. And tribal. Right, and tribal. And everyone was sort of putting their own um, twist on the whole the management techniques and, and what they thought would be useful. And so everyone was able to, you know, contribute their own ideas and influence um, possibly the meeting that's going to happen in June. So part of this meeting, part of this workshop was um, it was our job to, you know, put um, forth suggestions for the regional ocean planning body to consider when they're actually creating this um, this report in June that they're going to be using to do more ecosystem-based management. So we actually all argue, uh, the ideas that we came up with yesterday um, could potentially be considered and included in this ecosystem-based management approach. That's well, definitely be considered. They're going to be considered, and some might even be included. Yeah, so. I mean, they had real professionals collecting our, our ideas. So when I would say something, it would be written down verbatim. Right, <laughs> and there was yeah. a, a collection of people who are from the regional ocean planning body who were there as well listening to, you know, the academics talk about their science and um, us talk about our, you know, projects here at Ocean River Institute. So. Yeah. Yeah, we were sitting at the table with Mel Corte from the EPA, he's the EPA Northeast Ocean guy and stuff. It was great to have that kind of connection. So what's happening in June is that the regional ocean planner leadership guys will all assemble. There'll be this horseshoe of all the heads of tribal groups and state groups and government and federal groups, and um, that's it, I guess. It's the stakeholders are on the outside of the horseshoe. And uh, they will be given formal reports to and to respond to. So that um, will be a very formal meeting where there will be time again for comment, but it, it, what's Noah, you're referring to is the all the work that has to go into in these workshops to inform the process that will then formally meet in June. Right. Uh, next month in May, they will have a stakeholders workshop. So that will be all geared toward whatever other users of the ocean wish to say about the planning process. Um, so this was more of a wonky science one, although it was an awful lot of policy science. It's very little natural yes. science. Definitely. Um, and the little tidbits of natural science. For me, it's always a big success because it brings together the different silos of government with the different scale of government, the feds, the state, the regional, the tribal. Um, Chucky Green talking about Mashpee, uh, the Mashpee Council, the Mashpee Indians on Cape Cod and their whole perspective. And the... Uh, uh, Mike Forgety is the is, is the National Marine Fisheries Science Center uh, director in Woods Hole, and he works very closely with the Mashpee Indians to be informed of their historical perspective. You remember that yeah. stuff he was talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So it's really neat the way, no matter what reports come out, the fact that this national ocean policy calls upon 
people to step out of their day-to-day work in the offices and fields and stuff and come together is just, there's an excitement in the room of, of different colleagues getting to talk with one another. There are all kinds of spin-off conversations happening around us. So. Yeah. Definitely. And yet, we couldn't spend more than 15 minutes talking about the whole day. On the right, because it was very, I mean, it was very sort of, uh, it was a lot of very theoretical thinking about how to plan planning. You know, we were talking about the process of doing, of planning the environment, or, yeah, ecosystem-based planning approach. So, management approach. So Yeah, like they had to have, Produced, they've gathered all this data about all these different animals and different things and different usage and boat transport and stuff. And they've got a plethora of maps now. And one of the arguments was, well, do we figure out a way to combine all the maps or don't we not, do we not bother kind of thing? And they found that uh, when talking about the windmills off of Block Island and into Massachusetts waters south of Martha's Vineyard, you know, Shouldn't they just combine all the maps from Massachusetts and Rhode Island? And the Massachusetts and Rhode Island planner said, no, don't do that. It doesn't tell us anything. Uh, so a lot of kind of process stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so this is really the sausage making of ecosystem-based management. And it is not for public consumption. It's really the, the details. Nitty gritty, yeah. It's really nitty gritty stuff. And unless you are, you know, really into... Uh, but not even about That's the actual terrible. management of the of the fish stocks. You know, we were just talking about how to plan for managing right. in the future. And that's the hardest part of understanding about the process is that the New England Fisheries Management Council makes a decision regarding how much fish to take and how many oysters and, and uh, scallops to take and stuff. So this body has no authority. It, it's, I, I keep trying to say that we're not, it's not the deciders, they're only planners. Right. And the stakeholders there saying, you know, will you tell us when you're going to make a decision and be sure you hear our point of view before you make a decision? And, and the truth is decisions are made in the different uh, agencies, like BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean Engineering. It used to be Minerals Management, and now it's, Bureau, you know, it's BOEM and stuff. So they make decisions on the siting of uh, windmills, for example. And it doesn't matter what happens in our planning groups. It's, uh, yeah. But it's still good to have a conversation. Um, with people and hear all the perspectives. Right, and you hear what they're working on. Right. You know, and, and so, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Well, it's been a great time to decompress and talk about, you know, this week is involved from testimonying about uh, the sea herring, like sea herring. Hey, guys, please come to oceanriver.org and sign our petition to save Atlantic sea herring uh, by commenting to the National, the New England, yeah, New England Fisheries Management Council. It's been great talking about oysters. Yeah. That was a fun kind of side tangent that Anna Marie Frank brought to our regional planning meeting. Right. And um, I thank you most of all for telling us about education and how important ocean literacy, ocean science bowl, um, STEM is for not just your generation, Noah, but for all of us. Yeah, and you especially know you are a marine educator, so you can attest to the fact that students are benefiting from these programs. Thanks a lot. So that's it for this episode. Thank you, Noah. That's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening. 
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. 